Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Andy J Podcast. Hey there, welcome to this week's Andy J Podcast. I hope you are having a really good week and things are going well for you. Now listen, a bit of a change to the show this week. You know, most weeks we have a handful of celebrities, usually around three, and they talk about various different things. And on this podcast, sometimes those chats will be anywhere from 20 minutes to 40, 45 minutes. Well, this week we have just one guest, one very special guest, who I wanted to dedicate the whole show to because of the message that she has and the importance of what she has to say. I didn't want to dilute this conversation with other celebrity voices talking about other things and other purposes. Now, I'm going to tell you from the outset, this is not going to be the easiest of listens because of the nature of the subject. However, I think it's a really important listen, and it's a listen that I'm I'm very, very keen for you to dedicate some time to. It's a powerful and inspirational conversation rather than a scary one, although there are some themes in it that are very upsetting. You'll notice during the conversation, and I'm just going to tell you from the outset right now, I do start crying uh, a little bit after some of the things that uh, that we start discussing because I'm, you know, listening to what this amazing lady is telling me and it's affecting me. And when I read her book, which I did the day before, uh, I, I struggled to get through that without, uh, without leaking from the eyes a heck of a lot because of everything she has to say. However, the message that follows through all of this is very important and the empowerment and the fact that you can survive what she has gone through and still thrive, I think is vitally, vitally important for anyone to be able to hear and ultimately be inspired by. I do want to give out a couple of key uh, places you can visit should you need help if any of these issues that you hear today affect you. Firstly, I've mentioned them before, there are the Samaritans, the Samaritans.org.uk. You can always call them on 116123, that's 116123, or Samaritans.org.uk. Similarly, the other one that might be of use, and you will realise why I'm giving this out as we go along, is the National DA Helpline, that's domestic abuse, that's the nationaldahelpline.org.uk. If that is something that is affecting you or someone that is close to you or that you are aware of their circumstances, I would inquire. I would thoroughly encourage you to reach out. Now, the lady in question is Terry White. You'll have seen that from the blurb on the show and whatnot. She is the executive editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine, the brilliant, the best, one of the best film magazines out there. I think she's incredible. She's a voice on the Pilot TV podcast, and she has written this incredible book. It's, her, it's called Coming Undone, A Memoir. We're going to jump straight into this conversation now. The book is available in hardback now, and it's in paperback from the beginning of next month, April. And I must say, it's clear that I think you should read it from pretty much every word that we say in this podcast. I think it would change you, but I think it would change you in the right way. So we're going to jump straight in now with Terry White. The Andy J Podcast. She is the current editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine, which is brilliant. She's the voice of the Pilot TV podcast, and she's the author of the most staggeringly brilliant, well, memoir is what it is, called Coming Undone. It is the remarkable Terry White. How are you doing, Terry? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to be chatting, Terry. I want to say at the very start, because it's important, I think, to signpost this for the listeners, some of the things we're going to be talking about are going to be a tough listen. Some of the things yeah. that you explore in your book, some of the things that you discuss, it will be, it's not just a sort of stroll through the park that we're going to be chatting about. It isn't. A bit of a giggle. So I do want to signpost to people from the beginning that if you're in any way affected by what you hear or if you 
feel that anything you are hearing rings true to you and your circumstance, I would urge you to pick up the phone to the Samaritans. You can do that by calling 116123. Or, of course, if you'd rather not talk to someone, you need help just by typing, you can always go to samaritans.org.uk. I'll uh, give you those numbers again throughout the show, but I just wanted to get that out there from the start. Now, Terry, that sort of sets the tone a little bit, doesn't it? It's sort of, yeah. It's it sort of clearly we're not just going to have a bit of a giggle, although um, maybe we'll get a chance to do that later on. But your life is one that you have shared in the most remarkable memoir. I read it in one hit, and goodness me, wow! I mean, I burst into tears on multiple occasions. I was moved oh. so frequently by by your honesty and by what you chose to share with the world. I don't quite know how we start, Terry. So shall we, shall we start at the beginning? Which, mm. of course, was you were born into a marriage, oh, your mum and dad, very, very young. You, I believe your mum had just, literally just turned 16, and it was almost an yeah. act of defiance marrying your dad. Yeah, I mean, it was the day after her 16th birthday, and, you know, her, her parents, who were, who were very traditional very much were against the marriage. I think, you know, she always told me growing up that my granddad had offered her a horse. He'd buy her a horse if um, if she didn't marry my dad. I'm not quite sure he had the money to buy a horse. He was um, he worked for the gas board and my nana stayed at home. So I'm, I don't quite think he had horse money, but it was kind of, I think, the strength of his feeling about his daughter getting married, quite rightly, at 16. And then she had my brother when she was still 16, just before her 17th birthday. And I came along uh, when she was 18, which, you know, I think about that now. And she was just a kid. Mm. Yes, she hadn't she hadn't grown up on any no. level, really, had she? And, and yet... No. There she I mean, how do you know who you are? I know, I think, how do you know who you are as a human being? I'm 41 and I'm still kind of learning who I am and, you know, only just feel at 41 I've got a, a son who's a year old. I only just feel capable of, of being a, a good parent. And I think 16, I, I, I think it's just the most extraordinary responsibility. And, and, and you know, it kind of, I suppose it was, it was very likely it was always going to end in disaster, which it did. Yes, yes. Well, that disaster is obviously something that uh, I'd like to talk to you about extensively but I think let's just talk quickly about your mum because throughout mm. throughout the course of the book and, and obviously subsequently what you've what you've learned is that your mum as you've said because she was so young and so on she resented being a mum she resented being your mum. Mm. Mm. Yeah I mean very much she was from everything I knew from my nana she was incredibly bright growing up there were hopes that she would be the first person in the family to stay in education to go to university to get a good job um, and, you know, obviously when she then got married at 16 and had two kids, that went away quite quickly. And she worked in factories um, when I was a baby. And then in, in later life, she worked as a cook and a barmaid and a cleaner, um, all of which obviously are, are respectable and good jobs. But my nana very much wanted her to be the first educated professional, I suppose. And I think she wanted that for herself. And then when she kind of got distracted by this man she met and, and went down that road instead. She walked away from all those opportunities. And I definitely got the sense when I was growing up, I was very um, good at school. I found school a place of safety, a place where I could do well, where I could get praise, um, which was very different to a lot of what was happening at home. And actually, the more I, I did well at school, you know, I, I was made head girl. Um, of my sixth form, I stayed at sixth form. Nobody in my family had stayed past 16 before, well, past 15, actually, I think. And I went to university and she was very resentful, I think is the only word. And, and she seemed angry at me a lot of the time and she seemed to really resent it. She didn't um, support me going to university, either financially or any other way. And I only ever could put that down to the fact that I was kind of living almost the life that she could have lived had had she made different choices. Yes, yes, you were walking in the shoes that she wanted to be wearing. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that must be. I didn't have much sympathy for that at the time, and I didn't have much sympathy for that growing up because I just felt incredibly unsupported. I, I saw my friends with parents who would praise them, who would help them with homework, who would support them through university, 
and I didn't get any of that and I, I found that really difficult and I found it really impossible to understand and it's only as I've got older that I thought how painful must that have been you had all these these ideas about your own life she was an incredibly bright woman and instead you know all of those opportunities went away yes because of her choices but that doesn't make it any less painful to then watch your daughter make all I suppose what people might think are the right choices and end up with a really different life and at the end of it maybe she thought that I just essentially rejected the life that she lived and rejected the life our family had and and it's hard I suppose not to feel an implicit criticism in that. Yes yes and it must have been from from your perspective it must have been almost impossible to compute what normal was because you were watching people around you having a completely different experience and it just didn't align with what you were going through yeah and I was always it's interesting because our village was we weren't the only family with problems in our village and I remember there was another mum at the school gate who would often have black eyes like my mum and so I always felt violence was present where I grew up um, against women against children but I knew there was something more wrong, if you like, in our house. And I did have friends whose parents were very happy together, where violence wasn't present. I re- but I remember being, I remember going to a friend's house, I must have been eight or nine, and her parents starting to argue, but argue in a very normal way. But I um, couldn't stop shaking and start to stutter. And I had to stutter at the time when I got afraid because I presumed that he was going to punch her or hit her in some way. And so I think I'd, I'd normalised it to a certain degree, but I, I always knew, and I think kids do know, that there was something not right, that not every family lived the way that we lived. And obviously the more I saw of other people's families, the more that reality hit home for me. Yes, yes. Well, you've, you've obviously talked about violence, and, and that is something that clearly you've established your, your mum got hit. But also it's very clear in the book and, and, you know, this is a massive, massive thing for you to have to deal with. You yourself were, were, well, I mean, used as a punch bag on repeated occasions Mm. by by several different men because your father didn't stick around for for that long, did he? No. So we left when... um when I was two and uh, you know there's always conflicting reports about exactly why at that moment but he was incredibly violent um, towards my mum and towards the kids you know my mum always claimed that the, the time she left was was when he punched me into a fireplace and and sat on top of her so she couldn't get up to comfort me um, and you know they've both of them have always um, accepted that there was a huge level of violence in in the marriage um, and it worsened after my grandfather died so I think my mum was protected by him to a certain degree and then things really spiralled and I think it was the same year because I was two when my grandfather died that that she left and, and couldn't kind of take anymore um, but unfortunately that was the first in many relationships where violence was present we spent time in a women's refuge when I was about nine or ten um, because of another extremely violent partner who um, strangled my mum at one point and, and was also very violent to us. Was there anything you could do Terry at the time I mean it's easy to talk about this looking back isn't it decades later but Mm. Was there anything that was going through your head as little Terry that was experiencing this, that was living through it, was clearly terrified by it? Mm. Was there any point where you, well, you know, was there anyone you could talk to? Was there anyone you could say? Was there anything? Did you think about trying to steal a weapon of some description? I don't know. You know, these are these are kind of crazy ideas, of course, but I'm just yeah, if anything it, goes through your head at that age. Well, I think you know how powerless you are. So... And I did think it was normal. I remember years later talking to a teacher um, saying there'd been violence at home and saying, oh, but he only hits us like normal people do, like normal dads do, because I thought violence was present for everybody. And But I, you feel so powerless and so impotent because you, you know, physically, as a young girl, I was always small for my age as well. And I was very, very conscious from a very young age that I was the physically weakest person in the house. And that I had no way to protect myself or my mum. As I got older, I, I tried to step in more with, with my mum physically and, and stop those things happening. But there's very little you can do. And people were aware, you know, after we'd been to the refuge and we came back 
the neighbours said, oh, we heard you you guys screaming all of the time, but we didn't know what to do. And it didn't occur to them to ring the police. I rang the police a couple of times. When I got older, nothing much was done. So you, you know that the game is kind of rigged against you as a kid and that there is very little you can do to stop it happening. Um, I, I always knew that we would have to leave eventually. It took my mum, you know, the most violent man when we went to the refuge, he was with us for three and a half years. So that was three and a half years of total fear. I mean, it, just the thought of him now, even as a grown woman, makes me feel physically sick. I've never been more afraid of anybody. And I don't think I ever will be as afraid of, of as anybody. And that that kind of doesn't go away. But I still remember the feeling that there was nothing to be done. I rang Childline once um, when things were really bad. And, you know, I, I support the NSPCC now because they were a kind of a lifeline for me, although there was nothing they could do. There was somebody at the end of the phone for me to talk to. Um, but as I say, it was kind of known as well that violence happened and to a lesser or greater degree it was accepted by our community. And when it's accepted by your community as a kid, you you think there's literally no escape. Oh, Terry, goodness me. It's so hard. I mean, it, what's it like now, all these years later, and you've told the story so incredibly in, in this remarkable book, which incidentally I feel everybody, it should be on the mm-hmm. curriculum, everybody should read it, everybody should. Not, Thank you. Not, not just because, and, and of course I want there to be light at the end of the tunnel as we go through this conversation, because the, yeah. key, the key thing yeah. for me is, isn't, isn't just what you've experienced and endured and the way you've dealt with it, but it's the fact that you've come out the other side, that you're telling the story, that you're a survivor. You know, there's a huge, there's a huge amount of positive to take from, from your message, from your life, yeah. but, but I feel we do have to set the scene, and it's... The scene is such a difficult one to hear, to read, to experience, but you lived through it. And that's, I mean, I just hearing you say it as well. I heard your voice is so clear in the book, but hearing it from you, you know, person to yeah. person is, 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 is incredibly difficult to, to listen to as well. But I do think, I think it's important to, to talk about the reality of it because I think, and I think it, it's an incredible thing you're doing allowing me on your show to do that because I think it's easy for us to think in metaphors and think, you know, in shadows, oh, oh, you know, you hear the headlines, oh, a man beats his wife or, or kills his wife or, and you don't understand what that means on a human level. It's the detail of it, the reality of what it's like to be beaten by a grown man, to be abused by another man. If these things, I know they're hard for people to hear and there's a level, you know, with my book, there was a thing about, Where's the line when it comes to palatability? What are people willing to hear and to read? But I'm a massive believer in the fact that we can only face these things and talk about how we make things better by being really clear about the gravity of the situation and the reality. Because other other times people may just want to put their head in the sand a bit and think, oh, it's not as bad as as it might be. When actually for a lot of people still, especially working class girls, I feel like, it's still it's still that bad and people need to understand the nature and the, and the severity of it I think yes no you're you're so right and, and I'm so glad and I do want us to go into the detail and, and the book is is so raw and so real and you're absolutely right but but I also want to point out as well you, you've just mentioned it the book is dedicated to all the girls who fear they're lost forever you know you've written this yeah. there is a mission in your mind isn't it it's not just because you, yeah. you you sat on this story you sat on your truth for a long time before you shared it I did you know, and, and I can I understand why. Um, I, I did. And I, and you're right. And, it is, and I think, you know, having that openness, being able to talk about it, and as you said, being showing that there is a is a light, you know, it's not that things magically become better one day, but what you feel when you're that girl, that life will always be this difficult, life will be nothing but pain. That's what I thought. I thought I was doomed. And actually, it's taken me to, to the age I am now to realise that, I still had every chance of having a happy life, of building my own family, that the hope that gets snatched away from you when you're still such a young person, that you can't let them take that away from you. And so that, I think, is, is the overarching mission, if there is one, which is to say that you are still able to have the life that you want and that that thing that happened to you will always be there and will always be with you, but doesn't define you and it doesn't get to claim the rest of your life. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the way that you've, uh, it's the sort of phoenix from the flames type thing, you know. And, and, and incidentally, I do want to put on record before we carry on 
with with the past and and the things that you've experienced Terry I do want to put on record just what a remarkable professional you are you know the things you have achieved professionally the awards you've won the places you have worked the lofty heights that you have experienced you know you don't get to be editor-in-chief of a massive magazine in your mid-30s and earlier in New York and so on yeah win all these awards without being incredibly good at what you do and without being incredibly driven and determined and brilliant so for me, there's two Terry's in play. Mm. There's Terry the survivor. Mm. There's Terry the remarkable outlying survivor who's had all this horrific abuse and had to deal with everything and battled such huge demons, both physical and real, and then mental as a result of. And then yeah. there's the other Terry, the Terry who has has no past, no upbringing, whatever, is just mm. just a professional. Do you see what I mean? There's the CV Terry. Yeah. The CV Terry yeah. is, is an outlier anyway. You know, your CV is brilliant. Yeah. The fact that it's coupled with this incredible journey of battle, struggle and overcoming and surviving yeah. makes you just the most incredible lady, Terry. I mean, really, I, I'm in awe of you and, and, and what you've achieved Thank and you. how you've achieved Thanks. it. I'm sorry if I'm sounding choked up. I, I genuinely am. Mm-hmm. The way I think about your story and what you've done, I, I just can't not be moved and, and, and wish that there was some way you could get a, a clock and go back in time and, and change everything for I you. know. You know, I know. I, 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 you know, I, I sometimes think I think of that young Terry in my head as almost a different person, and and I, I wish that I could go back and say to her, it's, it's going to be all right. It feels dreadful at the moment, and and you think this is it, this is life, but it's not. It's not at all. So if if anybody listening to this feels or has ever felt like that, I hope they they're able to take the same thing from it. Yes, and and actually, it's also important, Terry, to point out that whilst your scars are physical you had physical abuse you also had sexual abuse which uh, i don't want to go into detail on because of the nature of the the time of this show but it's Mm -hmm. something that happened to you far far i mean it should never happen but it also happened at a grotesquely young age which is absolutely awful and left you scarred on so many levels but i think yes and and that's you know and that is as hard to deal with as as the physical violence and and that's often the thing where women feel when they grow up those girls become women and they feel so ashamed and they feel it has to be this huge secret I didn't tell anyone for years most of my closest friends didn't know and you know as you said I I held all of these secrets in for so long and I did and and that the level of shame that goes with um sexual abuse is something that I think is really, really challenging and is uh, offers up a whole load of problems and issues that are kind of, some of them cross over with the physical abuse, but some of them are, are very singular to, to that particular type of abuse. Yes, and I think it's very important, Terry, to, to just mark out if anyone is listening that's experienced this or, or, or knows somebody that has, you know, the, the physical, the sexual abuse, etc. It is not your fault. This is not something that no. you have invited. It's not something you have brought on. This is a wicked, evil, perverse, bastard human being inflicting power and control on someone that has none. It is not yeah. your fault. It is not the victim's fault on any level. And it's abhorrent what you've experienced. And might, might I also say, Terry, repeatedly, not just from one guy, but you, you know, yeah. your mum had a string of horrifically nasty men through that. Yeah. House. Yeah, and and yeah, I was I was sexually abused by two of them, and and what you were just what you just said is really important and really powerful because there's a thing when it happens more than once, and often there's a reason it happens more than once because these men are predatory and they know exactly what they're doing. But obviously, as the victim, when it happens to you more than once, you think. I remember thinking as a little girl, what am I putting out into the world? What am I doing that's giving off this signal? It must be me. It must be my fault. And then as I got older. I was like, well, you know, the, the second guy knew what happened the first time and used that as part of his power. Uh, and as you say, you know what, the shame isn't mine. The shame belongs to them because it is their shame. It is their actions. Um, and that's our instinctive reaction is to take that on ourselves. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, to get over and to really believe is that it isn't your fault. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's absolutely crucial, isn't it? Um, yeah. Terry, you, you describe in the book, I think you, I think your exact phrase is, I was seven the first time I went mad. And mm. you talk about how it's almost an out-of-body experience for you. When, and, and it almost sounds mm. like, it almost sounds like 
as a coping mechanism in a way you know the the terry your your soul as it were started watching from above mm-hmm. you, you took yourself to a different part of the room to just sort of watch on be an observer rather than a recipient if if that's if i've got that right i'm you know read some of the book through yeah. streams of tears so uh, you'll you know, yeah I'll, I'll take your lead but yeah that is in the dis- i suppose they would call it now disassociation which is quite common in in um, victims of abuse, which is a, a way for your body and mind essentially to cope with what is happening to you. And I've, I felt very anxious ever since being a very small child, which, you know, I think makes perfect sense if you grow up. If I was born into violence, grew up in violence, those crucial years when your mind's being kind of shaped um, and you are surrounded by chaos and pain and violence and, and depravity and all of that, then I'm kind of, you know, I'm not surprised that I was a very nervous child. I wet the bed for years. Um, I self-harmed at a very early age. And all of it was just kind of outward manifestations of how, how in, I suppose, in pain and in confusion about, you know, I didn't have any other thing to compare this with, but I just was living this experience that felt like hell. Every day felt, felt like hell. And my mum had to um, tie the window shut with strips of cotton because I used to try and get out of the window and jump out of the window. Um, and, you know, that, that's not normal behaviour for for any child and was, I think, a reflection of how serious things were at home. Yes, yes. It, I mean, it, the ch- your childhood was, was just in- incredibly tough and, and I can't I can't believe you got through it the way you did. I, I think you're incredible. Mm. You, you know, you call your demons your shadows, I believe, quite a lot of the time. Mm. You sort of refer to mm. them. And, and, of course, we know with a shadow, it's always there. It's always lurking. Yeah, um, yeah. Terry, there's there's a few things I want to sort of talk about, and and also obviously we have to talk about alcoholism and and how that's changed uh-huh. your life and so on and so forth. But there's something I would like to just bring up whilst we're and I want to move on from the men in, in your past. Uh. You know, once we've had this chat, if that's okay, there's a there's a section yeah. in the book where there's almost it's just a short, very short section, but it's almost the fantasy of revenge. You know, where you imagine yourself yeah. going back to the first man's house the man you yeah were, the, the guy you were really scared of and and basically get doing him over in in the most extreme of ways yeah. now obviously in the book that is just a fantasy that is just something that mm-hmm. that you've played with is that something that is that something you would do is that something you would is would you ever feel if you were in the same space as him now would you would you do something well i don't think so but for years i have to say i did i did toy with it and I talk about that in the book about finding his address um making a plan to go up um and I think if I if I would have done that at that point then I uh, I I don't see how I wouldn't have been violent towards him um and that was very much in my 20s when I had a lot of anger and a lot of rage about um what happened and and hadn't dealt with any of it hadn't shared it with anyone it was very much a kind of a turmoil within myself that nobody else knew about and that fantasy I had that I detail in book in which I kill him that was a very real fantasy I don't think I would have ever gone through with it because fundamentally I think I you have to have something different within you to be able to do such a thing and I don't um I you know I've got empathy um I'm not a sociopath or a psychopath like I think some of those men were but I think it was it was something that I clung to because I the first man had gone to prison for two years um the second man was never reported um and you know in my eyes I never really got justice and I never would ever truly get justice because what is justice for what had been done to me so it was something I clung to as a way in my head of of showing him the justice but also more importantly it was about physical strength because as I said earlier I was always very conscious of being the weakest most vulnerable person in the house and in these fantasies I was bigger and I was stronger and I was physically able to stand toe-to-toe with these men that had so frightened me for years. And so in, it was almost kind of me wanting to say, you couldn't do that now because then I was a child and, you know, now I'm an adult and now I could defend myself and now I could be the one that you maybe should be scared of. And so I think all of that was, was playing in my head. And, I, you know, I was very conscious when putting that 
in the book and I was I was adamant that there was nothing that was going to be censored because I think all of these kind of all of these debates around what's palatable around abuse and things like that I think it makes people afraid to share the truth of it and the reality is that when you've been violated like that it leaves you with a very real anger that that is you know can be overwhelming at times and I wanted to show that that happens it doesn't mean you act upon it but that it's perfectly normal to have those kind of fantasies when somebody has enacted such violence upon you um and that it it almost rolling out in your head like that is is the healthiest thing you can do other than you know tell your therapist or, or a loved one or um but yeah if i was in a room with him now, I think I'd pity him. I think I'd pity, you know, I, I, he offended um, after me. And he's clearly a very sick man who's had, I presume in, in many respects, a hellish existence. And I think I have a life that I'm happy in. I have my own family. And he didn't get to destroy any of that. And that makes me feel incredibly proud, but also incredibly validated that he didn't have that much power over me in the end, actually. Right, right. I mean, he's he's still alive, is he, this this guy? Yes. And and I'm imagining so are a few of the other men who, uh, who you detail in yeah. the book. So is is that and and I use the term lightly, Terry. I don't mean this in a, in the mm. most sort of extreme forms. Mm. But is is that the best form of revenge that you are not just surviving, that you've not just overcome them, but you are thriving? I think so. And and for years I thought, you know, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna show them. I'm gonna be happy. And it came from a place of you know when you want to be. When you want to violently be happy to try and prove something to somebody who's wronged you, it never quite works out. It kind of it gets a bit twisted. And I had to go through kind of hell and back, as I, as I talk about in the book, and various mental health issues of my own to be able to truly, truly become happy. Um, and at that point, you realize, oh, yes, that is, I have won in some respects, but that can't be your driving aim, you know, because happiness can't come from that place of, of evil and toxicity because it tanks it. So actually, the best thing you can ever do is build your life and live your life. And, and you know, I think for years, I was like, I have to get over it. I have to get over it because then I'm going to be okay. And I spent years struggling to get over it. And then, and this sounds like a terrible cliche, but it's a hundred percent true. You will never get over it. You just have to learn to live with it and you have to learn to carry it alongside you and find ways to manage it. And once I stopped, you know, waiting for this moment to happen where I got over it, then it, and once I start to live alongside it and, and accept it and say, okay, it's never going to be gone, but I am going to be able to sit with it. That's when everything changed for me. Right, like a like when you lose a very dear friend, you and you sort of you grieve them. It's only when you realise mm-hmm. you will always grieve them, you will always miss yes. them that you're able to sort of keep walking forwards, as it were. Yes. Yes. Exactly that. I think it, it and it it doesn't happen overnight, and it can take years. Um, and it's not the same for everybody, but that was certainly my experience. And and then you go, oh, oh, yeah, I am living a great life. And, you know, I, I write in the book about how I didn't want kids because I was convinced that I, you know, being a, a, a child of, of two parents who I think in their own individual ways didn't do a particularly good job, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get pregnant and I'm going to become like them I'm going to be a bad parent I'm going to be evil I have this sense I have this fancy of of like black flooding my veins and turning me bad and that put me off ever having kids and then I did and I do have a son and the moment when you realize actually I'm a good mother I'm a good parent the cycle doesn't have to repeat it's a small movement it's a small shift actually inside you but it's a it's a hugely significant moment and that's when they've truly lost the power truly truly when you don't even think about them when they're no longer dominating your life your thoughts or more importantly your choices yes your life isn't about them on any level anymore is mm-hmm. it? it's about who yeah. you are as a human to another human yeah it's mm-hmm. a huge huge thing i mean terry you talk about you know how of course how your childhood affected your your young adulthood and, mm. you know, it did see you spiralling into drink and drugs and, and you obviously 
did, as you say in the book, you came undone. You know, you ended up yeah. uh, on a psych ward. You, uh, I think you were diagnosed with several different sort of variants. One of them um, was major depression and substance-induced mood disorder. Uh, uh-huh. And I think other doctors had other um, kind of uh, assessments of, of your mental well-being. Yeah. But the point was, for a very long period of time, particularly in New York City, you were in a very, very dark place. And a lot of it was self-induced with booze and drugs and cutting and so on. Yeah. And, you know, I struggled with, with mental illness all, all of my life and, and had tried to kind of run away from it, was so adamant that they wouldn't get to win by me being ill. Um, but I think in many respects it was inevitable given given what I'd gone through. And I always tried to self-medicate through alcohol, through prescription pills. Um, and, you know, I moved to New York where prescription pills are, are relatively easy to get. And where, you know, my job, I was editing Time Out New York over there, which was essentially, you know, an, an entertainment and culture magazine. So going out to bars and restaurants was pretty much my job. And things escalated, you know, very, very quickly. And I was drinking to unconsciousness pretty much every night, taking pills, um, cutting. Um, I had chronic suicidal ideation at that point where I was just fantasizing day and night about it. And that's when that's when things really, as you say, kind of became extreme and I was hospitalized. Yes, but you survived. You, yeah, your the way you write about your time in the hospital, which is which is quite a significant part of the book, incidentally, for 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 what was just a handful of days, in actual fact, you know, the the, uh, the amount of words, two weeks, yeah, the, the amount of words that you've given over mm-hmm. in the book to that, and the way the book starts, and so on and so forth, you, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking you were there for a very long time, but in actual fact, it was just mm. an extremely intense and very very full on period of of those those two weeks, like you say which you detail mm. i mean it's it's it, on one level it's absolutely fascinating terry you know the the way you talk mm. about the sort of routine the order the the hierarchy of mm. of how things happen in there and the way you have to earn certain privileges and and so on and so forth and and the fact that your constant motivation is to be convince them you're sane enough to let go to to, to be yeah. let out you know it's it's a really interesting almost separate part of the book if that makes sense mm. Mm. I mean, it is. And I I changed my writing style a little bit because um, it's, I suppose, split into past tense and present tense. Present tense is in the hospital. Um, The pace of it is a little bit quicker. And yeah, the the past tense is a little bit more kind of part dreamlike, part memory. Um, And the psych ward, I have to say, like, you know, we've seen, we've all seen it on the telly. We've all watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it is, pretty much as terrifying as it seems because not only are you in a strange country, so I was in New York um, in the um, United States, but then I'm in a psych ward, which obviously I really didn't want to be in, a lot of psych wards, so you could never leave of your own free will, obviously. And um, it's really terrifying because I had always been in control of, of my life as an adult, very independent, financially independent. Um, I'd moved to New York on my own. I'd lived in London for a decade on my own before that. And suddenly I'm in a hospital in a strange country where I don't really know the law. I don't really know the rules. And all I wanted to do was to get out because that sense of being trapped um, and being held against your will is it's really overwhelming and, and as you see half the time you're just trying to play the game which is what thing do I need to say to sound sane enough to let go and what I didn't do which is what I should have done is I should have seen it as an opportunity to actually start to work on my mental health issues properly get a proper diagnosis get a proper medication and therapy strategy but instead I just kind of pretended everything was fine I, I told them as little as possible about what actually happened to me about some of the trauma I was dealing with. I, I played down the amount I was drinking. I just tried everything I could to to get out because I think that's just a natural human reaction when you're in that kind of situation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that that, that isn't in the book and I was fascinated by the whole time is is 
and I know this sounds like a very weird thing to kind of tangent off on, but what was happening with your professional life while this is going on? What did what did work know? Because you went to New York for a huge job. You had a massive yeah. position of power. And of course, you, you know, you checked yourself into A&E and, and uh, presumably thinking, you know, you might get your stomach pumped and then you'd be back at work the next day. But of course, that that didn't happen. So yeah, how did work respond? What What were they told? Well, I didn't tell them because this, and this is an important point, actually, as you were saying earlier about the two Terry's, I've always been very good at keeping the private me who had these mental health issues and was drinking too much and, and very dysfunctional. I kept that, that person very far away from my work persona. So at work, I was a very high achiever, alpha female, very driven, very ambitious very um you know could be depended on i never i had no chaos in my work life at all and so those two people were kept as far away as possible and then what happened when i was hospitalized is they clashed and collided together i never wanted work to know i'd got mental health issues because i thought that they would look differently at me that they wouldn't trust me that i would have less responsibility um, and I'd worked really hard my entire life to make sure nobody in my employee employers ever knew. So, but I had to tell them something because obviously I wasn't going to be there. So, and I'd never taken time off. So I called my deputy editor, who was my number two essentially, who was a, a friend of mine out of work, and I just told her and said, "Can you lie to them and say I'm I'm in hospital having." an operation or something gynecological, I can't even say that word, gynecological, oh, Gyne- you know what I'm yes, saying. Yes, I know, yeah, yeah. I, I was about to attempt it as then, and then mess yeah. it up myself. I mean, that's the way to stop people asking questions. Yeah. Yes, and then yeah. I knew that, and I knew that would be, and that, but then I later found out, because I had my, um, my insurance was through my job, it was part of my contract. Obviously, okay. all healthcare in America is done on insurance. So when I'd been given the insurance, I'd had to give approval for me to be admitted to the psychiatric ward. They'd been in touch with my employers and told them. So they knew the entire time and I had no idea because I worked very hard to keep it, keep it from them. Um, and But then, you know, when I was released, I was back at work the next morning and like nothing had happened. And everything just went back to normal. I was just desperate for to brush it all under the carpet and pretend it had never happened. And do you feel that that was supportive of them or, or the opposite? I think they were in a very tight spot because I hadn't told them. They'd been told it confidentially by my um, insurance company. And I think it was it was very hard for them to know what to do. And I think I was very good at hiding things. I was very good at, um, you know, I had a routine every morning to make sure they couldn't tell that I'd been drinking so much. So I'd put, I'd eye drops, which I do use a certain number of times a day to get rid of the red streaks in my eyes. Um, I, I just had this whole routine down so that nobody could know. So I think they were in a really difficult position. And, you know, the thing was, work was going incredibly well. We were doing, we had all these targets that we were hitting. I was winning awards. The magazine was winning awards. So on the professional side, even when I was absolutely falling apart at the seams personally, my career had never been going better. Yes. Yes, it's uh, it's incredible, isn't it? I, I guess they did what they felt you needed to keep, yeah. to keep you delivering for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. If, if Terry doesn't want to talk about it, we won't talk about it. That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Very interesting. Um, so, Terry, obviously, we, we talk about how you, you kind of kept this... These were your private problems, as, as you call mm. them. You know, you kept them to yourself for such a long time. Why why did you decide to then go public, as it were, and, and, and share? I mean, I think, as I kind of talked about earlier, shame and stigma are a massive thing. And they're words that are bandied around by people, but they are so powerful. And I remember the only time I'd ever talk about it over the years is... I would get drunk with, you know, a girlfriend or somebody I I just met or a new pal and we'd get really drunk and, you know, you have those nights when you share all your secrets. Um, and I would, you know, I there were a couple of people over the years that I told that I'd been abused and then the next morning woken up with such shame and paranoia that they were going to tell people, that people in the industry were going to find out. And so these the secrets became, bigger secrets became kind of shrouded in, even more shame and stigma. And 
the first time I ever wrote about the domestic violence we suffered was when there were big cuts to refuge services. And I wrote a piece out of pure fury that, you know, this life-changing, life-saving service was being cut back when women and children were already being turned away from refuge doors. And I firmly believe that if we hadn't have been given space in that refuge, that man would have tried to kill my mum again and probably us. So I wrote that piece out of fury and, and the, the sexual abuse I didn't intend really ever to talk about. And then when I got out of the hospital, um, I wasn't drinking. I was kind of, you know, spending a lot more time in my apartment. And uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you write little 50-word stories just to keep you kind of, you know, your brain going, give you something to do, to distract you. And I started writing these little stories and all of them kept coming back to the abuse. And I kept writing about it and writing about it. And, you know, the, it, the writing became longer stories and became what was clear was going to be a book. And I just thought I have to, I just felt an overwhelming urge to just say the truth once and let people know that it is. it does feel shameful. It does feel like there's stuff you should keep a secret, but that you can overcome it. You can learn to live with it. You can have the things you've been told you will never get to have. Men will tell you, men will have told girls out there that they're lost that there's nothing that can be done for them, that they're never going to be anything, that there's no use for them in society. And I know because I used to feel like that I was told that and I just became compelled to speak to those women and girls. And it kind of told itself after that. I, I wrote in, you know, big stints. I would sit at my desk all night and just write and write and write. Um, and, you know, it, when it came out, I just felt different. I felt... I felt changed in a way and I did feel unburdened and and lighter um, but I did think eventually this could be helpful and it could be useful and I think that that is, is reason and justification enough for me that I felt able to to publish the book. Yes uh, yes absolutely I mean I mean Terry obviously in in our lives, we have many purposes and one of them of course for you is mother you know let's I yeah. don't want to take anything away from from your reality, you know, the, the you that wakes up mm. in the morning with your baby boy and your partner and so on and so forth and the job mm. you do, etc. But but the power of your words, the, the the impact that your book has had already, the way it's been received, the difference it can and will do, do you feel like this story is one of your superpowers, one of your purposes? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've come to accept it in so much as I would not be the person I am now without what happened. And I think I always saw it as a negative, this awful thing that had happened to me that if I could just go back and change, I would. But now I kind of think it, there's very few women in the media, for example, in at my level of seniority who have the kind of background I have, yeah. or who have been, who've had experiences of domestic violence and, and sexual abuse and, and have come from a working class background. So I think there's, I feel a sense of responsibility to say, that, you know, to talk directly to those girls who were where I was. And and I think that I can't change what's happened, but it can be used to do some good and to create a sense of, you know, hope and even community. I heard from so many girls, and I have to say from, from lots of young men as well when the book came out, who were telling me their stories and their experiences and, and how they felt they had a bit of hope and, and the kind of comfort the book gave them, even in, in the, its most kind of graphic or difficult chapters, the fact that it did give them hope. And that was incredibly um, comforting for me in return to know that the book had, had kind of have done that for them. So it feels now not like something that I'm ashamed of and, and want to squash into a dark corner away from everyone else. I kind of want to tell more and more people and, and, and make sure that people understand that their lives aren't predetermined, that they can still achieve anything they want to achieve. And all these things, which I think sometimes can, can sound like cliches from people, but I, I truly, truly believe it. And I think when you look at the number of people in poverty in this country, when you look at the uh, rising domestic violence stats in, 
in the pandemic. And, you know, abuse that, for example, will never truly be known because it's chronically underreported, because it's, it's, it's in families and it's secrecy. I think that it's still happening so much. And I, I, those are the people I want to speak to directly. Um, and I hope the book um, reaches them and, and makes them feel, as I say, hope for the future. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, Terry, you, we, we sort of touched on how long it took for you to be able to share your truth, to, to share your private mm. problems. And now that you've put everything out there, now that the world knows your mm. story and more and more people are learning it and hearing about it, strange question for you, but bear with me. Do you feel, mm. do you feel safer now that your truth is out there? Safer in what way? Well, because in a way you spent such a long time hiding your truth. Mm. Do you see what mm. I mean? You were, you were escaping yeah. into professional Terry and then private Terry who, who really can't tell anyone. Yeah. You know, but now it's out there. You've nothing to hide. There's nothing to fear. Yeah. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Do you, yes. see, do you see what I mean? Yes. Yes. And that's really important because part of my, you know, when you come from a working class background, the sense of, you know, the imposter syndrome people speak of, the fear that your success and your achievements are going to get taken away from you. I definitely always had that. I was always scared of being fired and I was always scared of my career being taken away from me because somebody discovers that I'm mentally ill and I come from a background um, that's incredibly abusive and therefore, you know, maybe my mind's not right and I can't be trusted with a big magazine. I can't be trusted to lead a team of people. And actually, yeah, now that everybody knows, you know, you, you're always scared that your worst secret is going to be revealed. And, and my worst secret was, was that I had severe mental illness and why I had that severe mental illness. And, and actually, with it being out there, you know, and I've still got my job and I've, everything is still exactly the same as it was before. And you imagine there being some cataclysmic consequence of people finding out and it just isn't like that and now you know everybody knows who I really am and that desperation I had before for there to be several Terry's as you as you referred to it you know the work Terry the personal life Terry the Terry that I showed to my friends the Terry that my family knew all of those people were different people and the sense that you have to perform is quite exhausting and also that leads to a massive fracturing of, of your sense of self who actually am I and now that all those people can coexist together that that you know you've you've revealed who you really are and that and so therefore that is who you have to be all the time yes. so yes absolutely that, that there's more certainty in the world for me now that um everything is out there and that's why I use the word safe because yeah, I, because it's a I'm, good word. I'm sort of appealing to anyone out there that isn't living a truth, you know, that is yeah. that is keeping secrets because they think they have to or hiding things away because they think they need to. But actually, if you wear your story, then, yeah. then you'll realise that it's OK. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. And it's never your worst. You'll have a worst fear in your head and that worst fear will not come true. And that part of it's because there's been so much change over the last few years, especially around mental health. Um, and I'm sure some people privately, I'm sure there are uh, more traditional people I work with who privately think, oh, God, is she all right? Do you know what I mean? But but the things that you fear, the being fired, the being humiliated, all of that, that doesn't happen. Um, and I think what people do actually do is respect you and respect you for, for being open about who you are. And yes. And um, the, what, the way you phrased it is perfect, actually, of feeling safer, because that's exactly it. Great. Well, good. I mean, it's, I just, I'm just sort of thinking to it, if there's a vulnerable listener out there that's mm. wondering and that's being empowered by what you're saying, and by the way, they really must, they really must read the book, um, then, you know, the, the knowledge that actually safety lies in truth is, is quite, is quite yeah. important. Um, yeah. Terry, I've got a few sub-questions that I've been mm. wondering since us chatting and since reading and, and, and so on. You know, what's your relationship like now with alcohol? Do you drink at all? Do you, do you are you a social drinker? Do you not go anywhere near it? I do drink, and I did. I talk in the book about um, uh, I went to AA, yeah. which I found very, very difficult. Um, 
And here's my take. And, you know, everybody has their own personal opinion on this, which is I don't think I was an alcoholic. I think I abused alcohol because of my undiagnosed mental health issues. I also abused pills. I mean, anything really that could shift my mood because I struggled so much with it. Um, I did obviously have to stop drinking to blackout. I was drinking to blackout and, and falling over and knocking myself out, getting in all sorts of trouble. But um, the, the real issue, and I say this in the book, is I wanted to die for so long. So my pull towards suicide was so strong that I think I was consciously trying to drink myself to death. Um, and so what had to change was I had to tackle my mental health issues and I had to no longer want to die because if it wasn't booze, it would be pills, it would be knives. Like the, the, the thread through all of this was I didn't want to be alive. And that was a very difficult thing to kind of have the realisation of and have to work with. But I don't I don't drink to excess anymore. I can't tell you the last time I was drunk or tipsy. Um, I have a nice glass of wine with my dinner. But I'm also aware that if, if my mental health crisis appears again, that that may be somewhere it manifests itself or I may, you know, start trying to take pills again or I may do something else. So for me, they've always been symptoms of my mental health issues and that's the thing that really needed the attention because if I stopped drinking entirely and didn't do anything about my mental health, what I would do is I'd have gone and, and abused something else because, right. as I say, it was just a symptom. And I did find, I'm quite honest about finding AA um very tricky the yes. rules the kind the of handing yourself over yeah. Yeah. yeah i found it i found it a difficult system it definitely wasn't for me i know it's helped i know people who say it saved their lives and i think if 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 that's what it does for you absolutely you know crack on with it but i think it's it's different for each person and and you'll know if you are an alcoholic or if you're somebody who abuses any number of things because of deeper much deeper psychological problems right Right. No, that makes complete sense. Um, Terry, how's your relationship with your mum now? No, I don't. Um, I haven't spoken to her in in several years, actually. Right. Um, so we we have tried over the years. You know, we we didn't speak much in my twenties. I I think it's fair to say that over the years, maybe unfairly, I blamed her for some of the abuse we suffered because obviously my feeling at that point was, well, she brought those people into our lives um, over and over again. But as I've got older, I've I've developed, I suppose, more empathy for her and the situation she was in, her youth. She suffered greatly. You know, she's had her nose broken, her hands broken, her ribs broken. Like, she suffered huge, huge violence. Um, but we, we just couldn't ever forge a healthy relationship, to be honest. And it became quite apparent to me that I, I kept trying and trying and was, disappointed every time it went wrong and I think you do have to realize that some people you just can't change them for whatever reason and the only thing you can change is your response to them because you something has to stop something has to change in the situation and I realized that the only thing I had control over was my own behavior so I I decided um, it wouldn't be possible for us to have a relationship anymore um, because it was just too toxic and and I stand by that decision it 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 was a healthy decision to make um and especially now i'm a mother myself um i think it's it was the right call to make yes absolutely um i do feel that i need to ask as well about one other person that that is referenced in the book but not extensively um which, mm. is, which is someone that you do refer to as your hero your guardian your your brother how's he doing yeah because he had similar He's circumstances good. to you. He was born, born into the same household and, and so on. Is he all right? Because I, 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 yeah. I sort of wondered about him throughout the book. Yeah, I mean, he, he, we are very, very close. And growing up, he was kind of like a parent to me. He was a, a protector. We had the same um, dad. And, you know, I write in the book about how he, he protected me. And he still does. We're, we're two years apart and... He's amazing. He's a dad. He's got his own family. Um, he is also the greatest dad in the world. You will never meet a better parent than him. So I'm incredibly proud of him and, and how he's um, turned out as a parent and as a human being. So, yeah, he's, um, he is a brilliant, he is a brilliant man. Still my hero. 
Fantastic. That's really good to hear because it was something that I was I was very keen to know that he was still... I, you referenced your niece and I just assumed he was okay, but I, I felt like I needed yeah. to check, you know? Yeah. It's one of those things that you just sort of... You become so close. I mean, it's... And that's actually something... Uh, you've probably heard this from so many different people now, but as a reader of your, of your story you feel so close to you you know I I feel as uh, I'm sure you've you'll have this because you've shared so much you know I feel an ownership of care towards you now and I'm sure that Mm -hmm. everybody that reads it will have the same you know this sort of this just desire to be you know supporting you and giving you a hug and and wanting to be (laughs) your friend and and just saluting you and applauding you and you know you are phenomenal and what you've done is incredible and the way you've described it I believe the book's being optioned for a, for a massive, I mean, it's, you, you sold the rights to it, and it was going to become a huge movie. Oh, TV show. TV so, show. Um, yeah. yeah, so so Bad Wolf, who um, did Discovery of Witches, and um, uh, what is the other big one? Oh, I can't remember. Um, oh, God, I'm terrible. What's that other um, massive telly show on BBC? <laughs> You've narrowed it down there. His uh, Dark Material. His Dark Material. Yeah. A massive TV show on the BBC. Well, we could start with Doctor Who, uh, The News. Uh, yeah, so material. they're called, yeah. Uh, yeah, Bad Wolf, they're called the production company. They optioned it last year. So, um, yes, hopefully we'll have some exciting news about that soon. This is amazing. And, and will yeah. there be a follow-up? Uh, well, so I am working on another book. Well, I'm actually working on a, a novel, but um, there is, I'm, I've been writing about motherhood. Obviously, I, I did have my son a year ago and coming undone, you know, I, I, it's funny, I found out I was pregnant when I was doing the final edits of Coming Undone. Oh, wow. And I was I was going over the edits for the, pay, for the chapter where I talk about not wanting kids and why I didn't want them. And obviously, I left that in because it was true to how I felt at the time. Um, but coming undone ends with me flying back from New York and being in London for one day. And then, but obviously, you know, that was five and a half years ago and, and a lot of life has happened since then. And obviously my stance on parenting changed quite drastically. And I do now have a one-year-old boy. So, uh, yes, I am working on a, a second nonfiction as well, which picks up uh, where where coming undone left off. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Terry, wow. I mean... The book is incredible. You are remarkable. It's been an absolute honour to have so much time with you to be able to digest it and and talk it through. I was crying even during this. I had to fade my microphone a few a few times. Oh. I'm a right old wuss. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so. It's, um, thank you for being so generous and thoughtful with your questions. It's it's all of the things that I wanted the book to do and all of the um, things that I put my heart and soul into. You've picked up on and it's been great to talk about them all with you no it's an absolute triumph terry and, and actually i should also point out as well because of course you know your story is is astonishing and we've touched on that but you, the way with words as a as a purely as a writer you are brilliant i mean quite brilliant. Oh, thank you. you can you can craft a sentence like very few others terry you are very very talented um and and it's yeah wow um i was hoping you know we'd have some time to just have a bit of a giggle but we really don't (laughs) i do do feel it important to sort of point out to the listener as well though that there's a there's a side to terry that i'd gotten to know prior to the book prior to knowing your backstory which was of this sort of brilliantly hilariously opinionated funny engaging charismatic presence because of the pilot tv (laughs) podcast because you watch almost as much telly as i do i think i do probably more movies because you have to um yeah and so and so there is this and i thought sort of thought to myself oh yeah well you know we'll we'll talk about the book and then you know and then we'll just have a giggle about some telly but we haven't had a chance (laughs) to do that but i do want to let the listener know that there is a side to you that is enormously funny and you know compulsively engaging and you always you're brutal with poor james dyer although (laughs) it it might be he's he's earned it yeah yeah well, it's funny, a friend of mine said, he said, oh, you know, he read the book, he's very supportive, he said, oh, it's so brilliantly written. He said, I'm really worried people aren't going to get to know that you're funny. You're so funny. But I said, well, the book wasn't really the place for the gags. Yeah. Let's be fair. Yeah, it w- yes. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't <laughs> expecting any gags and, uh, and, <laughs> and it duly delivered. But I also wasn't sure if we'd have time for some gags. There's so much I want to talk to you about outside of the book and your life, you know, about what telly should we be watching and what's it like editing a massive magazine and how's it been in the pandemic when cinemas are closed etc but we haven't got time for any of that Uh, well let me just say you should be watching the new series of unforgotten editing the world's biggest film magazine is an absolute thrill and 
it being editing a film magazine in a pandemic when cinemas have been shut has been very, very trying. But they're coming back and uh, we can't wait to see the movies back on the big screen like everybody else. May the 17th, people. Not much longer to go. Too right. Too right. Oh, well, thanks for that conclusion. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know any one-liners that we could just prove you're funny, Terry? <laughs> Not, not, no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I got totally blindsided once. I don't know why I'm sharing this at the end of our chat now, but I got totally blindsided once when I was talking to Bonnie Tyler, right? And we were having this quite interesting chat about how she'd learned to swim age 70 or something. And then she just goes, can I tell you a joke? And I went... <laughs> Sure. She was like, don't worry, it's clean. And it was brilliant. And I was and that totally took me by surprise. I love it when things like that happen. That's it's, amazing. Uh, yeah. That is amazing. I love the fact that Bonnie Tyler has just like quick jokes stashed in a pocket for she, time of need. She just wanted to have a little pause in the chat and just tell again. Amazing. You know, bless her. Bless amazing. Her. Be more Bonnie Tyler. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, be more Terry White first, I think, is, oh. the, is the key thing. Um, Terry, I, I can't thank you enough for, for everything, not just your time now, but for what you've done for for speaking out in such an eloquent and impassioned way and for making a difference and I'm and I'm sure you know this I'm sure you know that your words have power and impact and I'm sure you know that they will change people in the right way I hope so I do hope so I mean, if they don't, then there's something wrong with the world. But then there has been forever anyway. But no, well, yeah, there is incredible. that. Um, Terry, thank you. I, you know, I, I just, I, I want to be your mate, to be honest with you. <laughs> we can be pals. We you can be pals. You can't say that to me. Gok Kwan said that to me and I never got invited to his house. Uh, well, you see, I'm no Gok Kwan. I am no, I am no fly by night fashion stylist pretending to be your pal. <laughs> he said he'd cook for me. He didn't. Didn't even send me a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! That is, oh my god! Well, that is a brush off and a half, isn't it? Properly snubbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I feel absolutely flattened. Look, Terry, <laughs> thank you very, very much, and and thank good you. luck with everything. And I really, thank hope, you. I really hope you'll stay in touch. And I will, uh, I will, sure. And do try Succession. I'd love you to. I will. Sort of let I'm me going know if you to. think it's any good because I. I'm loved going it. to. Brilliant. Okay. Well, you may get you might get a mention on the podcast next week. Well, I will be listening because I listen mm. every week, so I'll be excited. <laughs> Good. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, oh, Terry. Lovely to talk to you. You too. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. Andy J Podcast. So that was Terry White and her incredible story. Um, as you heard at the end, there she's also super super smart and funny and engaging and I mean all of that stuff was clear during our conversation but there's another side to Terry that I knew before I knew her backstory before I'd read her book because I listened to her on the Pilot TV podcast and I think of her as this brilliant clever so so savvy smart sophisticated lady and so if you want to hear the other side of Terry then then her day job um, she's brilliant obviously from Empire Magazine and the Pilot TV podcast and so on and so forth I'd like to repeat the uh, details I gave you at the start, just in case you missed out on them. If you need to reach out, the Samaritans.org.uk are always available and you can call them on 116123. That's 116123. And if domestic abuse is something that you're experiencing or someone you know has experienced or is going through, then please do visit nationaldahelpline.org.uk for support and advice. Thank you for your company this week. Thank you for making it this far. I hope that this has been an important listen for you and I hope that uh, I hope that you've learned something from it and I hope you feel empowered by it. We'll be back with more, probably a lot more light-hearted celebrity conversation for you here on the Andy J Podcast next week. But for now, have a good week, take care of yourself and be safe. Bye-bye. If you're enjoying the Andy J Podcast, we'd love a review. In fact, if you're enjoying the show, why not tell your friends? Podcasts live and die on, well, often word of mouth, so please tell your friends. Like, subscribe, review, and share. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.